The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SVM. Silvercore is a low-cost silver-producing Canadian mining company with multiple mines in China. The company recently commenced commercial production at its GC project in southern China. The company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential and the ability to grow organically. Gordon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Give us a brief history of the company, if you don't mind, including its inception. Silvercorp was founded by current uh, chairman and CEO, Rui Fang, in 2005. He actually built the company fairly quickly. By 2007, all the assets are in China, in northern China and in southern China. They've got two operations, in the Ying District and the Guangdong District. And by 2007, Rui had actually started to generate revenue for the company, which I found it compelling because for a company to start out in 2005 and actually be generating revenue for shareholders within two years, it's a high-grade story, which again appeals to me and is why I joined the company. It's been going ever since and been profitable most years. The silver price has obviously affected that, but it's been a profitable organization. 2005 to 2017, it's going strong. Let's talk about the company's just-released earnings results. Quite proud of them, actually. Last four quarters have been quite good. We had revenue of 130 million compared to 88 million the year at the same period last year. Net income was 30 million, and a year ago it was 8 million. So that's a 284 percent increase. So those kinds of numbers are numbers that I think investors can get their heads around. We're also, I'd say, we're the lowest cost and highest margin producer in our space. At negative five dollars and 48 cents to produce an ounce of silver. No one's touching us there and those margins at those numbers it gives us a 58 percent gross profit margin again grade and metal prices make a big difference for companies like us how do you account for the huge jump in revenue last year and what's the plan going forward in 2017 could we see even greater results well we're slated to have our guidance that we gave out has them growing silver and base metals particularly silver yes we do see that kind of growth sustaining of course metal prices are going to have a big impact on that we're hopeful that the metal prices will hit the status quo or give us a little bit of, of joy we're the kind of company when you have grade if the metal prices and, and silver go off a dollar or two it, it makes a tremendous impact on the bottom line so yes going forward we're looking at increased price productivity, production, and increased revenues and profits. I think we can extrapolate the answer from what we've already covered, but with regard to low-cost production and the company's history of that, how is the company positioned alongside its peers as a potential investment opportunity? 
as I said earlier, at negative $5.48 to produce an ounce of silver and hauling sustaining costs of $3.96 over a nine-month period year over year, we're at the front of the pack. When you look at this space, the person that's closest to us is producing at $8 an ounce. So it's about grade and it's about the ability to be able to produce cheaply and efficiently. There was a time when we had our head grade dropped in 2014. We had some issues. Management focus was distracted, but since 2015, the head grade's gone back up to 300 grams per ton. It allows us to produce at a good rate, a good cash cost. Do you believe, Gordon, that we're going to see the highs in the past for silver stocks, even with regard to your own company, Silver Corp Metals? I think that early on in the cycle, in the early 2000, early on, it was a unique situation where all metals were rising at the same time. Rising tide lifts all boats. It was one of the on a unique situation where I hadn't seen it before in the industry where all those metals rose at the same time, and it gave a lot of lift. And of course, it was driven by growth in China and the BRIC and those countries and the United States. But I'm not certain that we will see that kind of a growth cycle again. Having said that, today is much better than it was a year ago or a year and a half ago in this industry. It was in the doldrums. We're getting lifts in the marketplace. We're getting growth in some sectors, and it's translating into the lift in metal prices, which we were long overdue. Why is Silvercorp focused specifically on China? Of course, that's where the resource is, but why China as a whole? The principal chief executive officer, chairman, is a Chinese-born Canadian citizen, and he knows China well. And there's lots of opportunities in China. It was underdeveloped. There wasn't a lot of capital that flowed into China early on in that cycle I mentioned earlier. And he took advantage of that in the early 2000s. So there was lots of opportunity to consolidate. The, the government recognized that it needed outside capital to develop the industry, and he was right there. And what that's done is allow him to be at the forefront with the government in terms of understanding how it works, the taxation, the policies, the permitting. Once you're in there, it's really important to sort of stay the course there. And There's more opportunities for the company in China. Does Donald Trump being in the White House affect your operations, giving his protectionist trade policies or possible posturing toward China? The answer to that is no. And the reason is all of the production that we produce in silver and in base metal stays in China and is actually purchased in China. It doesn't get shipped out of the country. If there's a metals war between two countries for whatever reason, they wouldn't affect us at all. Let's take a look at the extended management team. As I said, Dr. Rui Feng founded the company. He's born in China, but went to school in Canada, University of Saskatchewan. He's a geologist. He really understands mining and mining practices. What I really like about Rui is his entrepreneurial spirit. He understood quickly that finding high-grade ore and taking it to a smelter in China, and they looked at it, and they said, where did you get this? And he basically said, I run a property that has this level of grade, and they immediately, because it was so high-grade and they could use it for blending, to give us some more, and that's how he got into production. Instead of going to the capital markets, like most exploration or early-stage companies do, and diluting shareholders, he actually generated revenue and mitigated against that kind of dilution for shareholders, which I respect him for. CFO is Derek Liu. He's been in the mining business for 20 years, knows it well, and has done a lot of work in finance in the area. I come from a background of corporate finance and investor relations. Used to own the second largest IR firm in Canada. And I love the silver space because I was a VP of corporate development for Mag Silver. I'm proud of that because it's quite a success story as well, as well as this one is a good success story.
January. Lauren Waldman, corporate secretary, he's been very helpful here in terms of helping to guide the company through some trying times. As a short seller that came after it in 2011, and that was the management distraction I, I alluded to earlier. And the company was ultimately vindicated, and that's what allowed them to go back and look for more grade and for more tons. Gordon, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I look forward to many more conversations in the coming months. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SBM. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as NEE. Northern Vertex Mining Corporation is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine Gold Silver Project located in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona. Over the past six years, the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold-silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold-silver production. Ken, welcome back to the program. Ellis, thank you very much for having me. If you wouldn't mind, please give our audience a brief overview of the Northern Vertex story. Our story is really about the Moss Mine in Arizona, and Northern Vertex has been successful since 2011 at proving up a resource. We've drilled over 470 drill holes on this property, all up in total. There's probably close to, I think, 750 or 800 drill holes on this resource. We've established a feasibility. We've conducted a test mining pilot plant that produced 4,000 ounces of gold and 20,000 ounces of silver. We completed a feasibility which demonstrated very robust numbers. We've got a 48% internal rate of return after tax, so that's exceptional for a mining property. And we also have an all-in sustaining cost of $662 per ounce. So what that says is if gold were to pull back from its current levels, even down to $1,000, we have a very strong project that would continue to push forward. If gold were to move in the $1,500 or above, then of course the internal rate of return would climb as well. So all in all, we've got a strong project. It's under construction. We're also conducting additional exploration, so we've been quite happy with the progress to date. And you're scheduled to go into production in the fall of 2017 this year, correct? That's correct. Construction's underway now. We've got Dagerstorm doing the earthworks. We've got Goldern Associates looking at the heap leach pad. And we've got a number of other groups. M3, who is our engineering group. M3 is a very strong engineering group. Has been one of the leaders in the heap leach projects in North America. So we're happy to have a complete team behind us. And it's led by Dr. David Stone, who is our project construction manager for Northern Veritech. Becoming a producing mine in the U.S. is no small feat, and in Arizona with the Moss Mine and Northern Vertex, we're almost there. Well, we're one of the few companies that since 2011 has really taken a project forward and advanced it to that doorstep of production. And we're very pleased with the progress. When others were shutting down and idle, we were raising capital and funding this project and moving it forward. We're really pleased with the way things have unfolded here for Northern Veritech. It's been relatively inexpensive to build out this mine. Well, in terms of a mining project, our capital expenditures are approximately $33 million. So this is on the 
lower end for a mining project. We've invested over the last four or five years, while the company has raised over $52 million to date now. In terms of mining, it's not a large project, but it's very manageable and stands to be very profitable. Tell me about the permitting process in northwestern Arizona. Ellis, the permitting process for Northern Vertex was accomplished for the test mining facility, and we did that in just over about seven months. We were very happy with the process. We worked well with the regulatory agencies, and now for the phase two commercial mining, we've been successful at receiving pretty much all our permits. We have them in hand right now. There's a number of permits dating back to sort of a renewal of the test mining, so to speak, but most recently we had our air quality public hearing, and it went through very smoothly. We received our approval the next day. We moved on to the stormwater prevention plan and the aquifer protection permit is one that we just put up our bond in the last few days for $1.4 million. So all in all, we've got our permits in hand and we're very happy with the procedures and the process. Let's talk about the contribution you're making locally by providing jobs. Well, the town of Bullhead City has a population of about 35,000 people, and our mine site is located just 20 minutes to the east. And this is unusual for a mining project to be located near a source of talented people that can step in and work with the company. And what's unique as well is our employees will be able to go home and sleep in their homes and be with their families each night. And this is something that really helps out with the retention of your employees. Mining projects often are in remote areas, and the employees are away from their families and it's very stressful on them. In addition, we're just an hour and a half south of Las Vegas and about three and a half hours west of Phoenix. So in terms of inventory, we don't have to carry large collection of inventory that can often amount to 10 or $15 million worth of equipment sitting idle. So we can have access to this inventory. As an example, our crushers and our conveyors, those orders have been placed and the manufacturing of that equipment is underway right now with a group called Goodfellow, which is only one hour north of us and about 30 minutes from Las Vegas. So we have easy access to the manufacturers and equipment suppliers. So we're pretty pleased about that. And that's a key reason why our capital expenditures are at that $33 million level and not much higher. What's the share structure of Northern Vertex as we look at this company as a potential investment value? We have approximately 100 million shares outstanding. We've raised in excess of about $52 million for the company. Many of our shareholders participated at higher levels through the development process in a challenging market. We had done approximately $23 million worth of financings between $1.15 and $1.25. We're currently sitting in around 40 to 50 cents, and we think it's a tremendous opportunity for a company that has gone through the process of developing and is right on that doorstep of production, and that's often where you see a lift in the valuation of a company. So we're pretty pleased with where we're at, and we think this is a tremendous opportunity. Ken, thanks so much for joining me again today. I look forward to visiting the Moss Mine soon in Bullhead City, Arizona. Ellis, thank you very much for having Northern Veritex and myself on. We're pleased with development, as we mentioned, and look forward to your visit to the mine site. I've been speaking with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange's NEE. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on TuneIn Radio or iTunes. Resource stocks, gold, silver, rare earth elements, oil and gas stocks. Learn about them by going to our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. 
Join me for a discussion with James McDonald, President and CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major projects in Mexico, including the La Cigar Silver Project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra Silver Projects in Sonora State, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile, highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico and a carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. Kootenay Silver currently has two drill programs in progress in Mexico and a combined 43101 silver asset base of over 140 million ounces of contained silver. Forward-looking statements may be included going forward. Today, as part of a series of sponsor company interviews, I'm speaking with Mr. McDonald at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Jim, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thank you, Alice. Pleasure to be here. Last time we spoke, I think you were uh, underground or near your project, the La Cigar project in Mexico. Uh, what's happened since then? Well, I just got back from there last night, actually, and a lot of things. A lot's cooking down there. We made a new discovery on a, on the ram structure. We tested 400 meters of a 3,000-meter-long structure. We hit silver in every single hole, so that's looking very promising. We've been picking that deposit apart, doing a lot of geologic work, relogging, remapping. The whole objective there is we think we can improve the current resource. We think we can constrain it, which means the grade could come up. Grade comes up, it becomes more economic. Latest news release out was on uh, metallurgy. We've done some uh, leach testing with a uh, process called the Silvox process, which is just a variation of a, the tried and tested traditional leach process. And it's uh, showing that we could potentially get 7 to 14% higher recovery in a heap leach situation on the La Cigarra deposit. That gives us it's a very interesting possibility to get that deposit into production with a much lower capital and operating costs. Let's talk about some of your partners here. Who are some of the major shareholders? Well, we got quite an interesting shareholder base. We've got Coor Mining, for example. We've got Agnico Eagle, and then we've got Pan American Silver, who came in with a large investment on the based on the promontorial project that we optioned to them last year. What's the plan for the company going forward during the next 24 months, let's say? Next 12 months is going to be basically drilling, doing this remodeling, resource estimate, new resource estimate in La Cigarra, and then going into a preliminary economic assessment. On the uh, Promontorial Negra project, which is optioned to Pan American Silver, they're going to be back drilling. They'll be doing more metallurgical work. They'll be drilling some new additional targets as well. So they've got quite a strong budget for that project. So in other words, a lot of work going on, a lot of news coming out in the next 12 months. You're fairly well financed for all the news flow that you're going to be generating. Yeah, we currently have uh, six million cash in the treasury, and so we're well situated to move ahead on on our programs for the year. Now we're here at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. What kind of sentiment have you been feeling when you've been greeting investors, potential investors, and other people in the same business as you? Well, much improved over a year ago. We saw this market uh, bottoming probably 2015, 2016, and we saw the turn, what we believe is the turn last year about this time. So this year, this show is, uh, there's a lot more people here much better attended. The feeling and the motion and the the sentiment here is, is very buoyant. Well, Jim, it's always a great pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Well, thank you. And look forward to doing it again. I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as KOOYF in the U.S. and KTN on the TSX Venture Exchange. 
Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Dudley Baker, founder and editor of CommonStockWarrants.com, an exclusive database of all stock warrants trading in the U.S. and Canada. Mr. Baker is a newsletter writer and analyst who also covers the resource sector. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Ellis, great to be here. Now, the last time we spoke, it was probably about two years ago when there was no sign of recovery for the mining sector. And you and I were talking about really collecting a basket of stocks of companies that could survive the downturn and be positioned for real growth when that bull market returned. It's returned. And I believe that you've done very well with your strategy. Let's talk about that. I tell you, it's been a great 15 months or so. I sure hope that you got your basket of stocks because my basket of stocks has done incredibly well. So it's been a wonderful time. Before we even hit the bottom, say in January of 2015, early early 2016, I was still looking for opportunities. I was still trying to cherry pick and hit the bottom on some of the companies. And we've done rather well as the markets turned. Even here in the month of January was an incredible month for my personal portfolio. And I always say those subscribers of mine that have access, the gold and lifetime subscribers, have access to my portfolio. They know everything that I'm doing, what I'm buying, what I'm selling. If they choose to follow me, you know, after they do their own due diligence, that's great. Hopefully, a lot of my subscribers to Common Stock Warrants have done rather well. But no, it's an exciting time. I think we're still in the early stages of this, what we'll call it, a new bull market here in the resource sector. Would it be safe to say that you've experienced some five to 10 bangers during the last two years? More. We've had at least three in the last six months that have been a minimum of 1,000. Actually, one was a 2,000%. And that was something that I came into last June at 16.5 cents and was selling at $3.20 to $3.30. Does that mean I'm smart? Does that mean I'm lucky? I don't know. We all need a little bit of of both to really be successful in this business. We've been really greatly positioned in some interesting plays, whether that's gold companies. So I've got a nice nearly a 2,000% gain in a one that was in the Z light business. And so oil and gas business, my personal portfolio is really kind of diversified. Everybody thinks of me as being the warrant guy, you know, with the common stock warrants. Well, I've got the database of all the warrants that are trading in the U.S. and Canada. And I know most of our listeners are interested in those mining companies that have stock warrants that are trading and available to go out and buy. But in addition, only say 25% of my personal portfolio is in stock warrants on companies that I like. And the rest, 75 percent of my portfolio is the common shares. And nearly all of those are in the resource sector. So it's quite a diversification from some in oil and gas, manganese, again, still in zeolite, some different positions that I really feel super about. And now I always like to think when I go in or anything that I'm holding, I want to say it still has 10 bagger potential, meaning a thousand percent gain from here. So I guess you could say I'm kind of a greedy guy. It's working out really well. We've got some great picks in my personal portfolio, in my opinion, that are working out well. A lot of the names that are in my portfolio, you will not see anywhere else from any of the other newsletter writers. I stumble into things in different ways. I do listen to a lot of the other newsletter writers, but I come into some via insider buying, just keeping my eyes and ears open out there to the news. I would never come into a position that the insiders did not have a substantial position. I'd like to see them be buying, but sometimes it's just they got an 
to be neutral. If they're selling their stock, why the hell do I want to be buying, right, for me or for my subscribers? I like to have a strong tone from an insider standpoint, obviously quality assets and in good location. I think we've done a good job for years here with the database, with the warrants. This is how most people find me in our service, Common Stock Warrant. That is El Primo. It's the only one you'll find where we keep this stuff up to date every day and got some incredible opportunities here in the resource sector with many of the warrants now with uh, with roughly a three-year life or more. And I don't know how you feel, Ellis. My personal view is within this next two to three years, there's going to be some incredible money made in this resource space. We can start to see it happening in the last few days. Gold today, as we're recording this, ran up to 12.45, and that's pretty good. Silver is just below 18. So we're experiencing some really good moves here. Probably telling my voice. I like to be excited. I enjoy what I'm doing and we're leading a lot of subscribers to some really nice gains, so I'm happy. I understand in uh, many cases, warrants might be more exciting than the common stock. Why don't you explain why? Well, it's all about leverage. And to mention one name, my one example where I said about a 20-bagger was on Northern Dynasty. Northern Dynasty is being touted by several of the big players in the business, other newsletter writers. Last summer, Northern Dynasty had a monster project up in Alaska, permitting issues, and that's what made the stock really go, is that they're looking for under the Trump administration, probably relaxation of the permitting with the EPA. And so that project may finally get permitted. When I came in, I was able to pick up those five-year warrants at 16 and a half cents, just about maybe two weeks after the private placement. I came in at 16 and a half cents. That's what I sold for between 320 and 330, roughly 20 times my money. I still hold one third of that position in case it just explodes substantially higher in front of me. It's all about leverage. You would have no doubt made five, six times your money if you'd have bought the common shares. But if you'd have bought the stock warrants, like I did, I know many of my subscribers did, we would have made that two to three times multiple. And it's about the increased leverage. That's the whole game with stock warrants. There's no mystery to them. It's very simple to understand. Most of the warrants, they're all Canadian, basically, and easily trade on the Canadian exchange. A lot of them do have U.S. symbols that can be traded. But my subscribers, I always let people know you could come to just my learning center and, and I give a few of the brokerage firms here in the States that are the the best to use if you're looking to trade the Canadian shares and the warrants. With stock warrants, it's easy and it's all about making more bang for your dollar. They're all going to cost you a fraction of the price, less than half, maybe one third, 25% of what the common shares would cost you. And if you've got a three to four to five year life, it's that upside leverage that's going to give you more than twice of the gains that you're going to get out of the common stock. That's the whole game. Less money on the table, but higher reward at the end of the day when we are proven to be right. And we're right more often than not. Everything in life cannot be a home run. So it's all about dollar allocation and spread your money. If we see something that we don't like, we're prepared to get out in a hurry. We're here to make money, but we're not traders. I want to say we're more longer term investors, meaning a couple of years. You're not traders at all. You look for real value in what you invest in. It was just the, the luck of the draw last summer when I went into this one warrant on Northern Dynasty, it had a five-year life. So I had no intention of being selling this in six months. Well, when they drop almost 2,000% gains right in front of you, you got to take some money off the table. And this was big money to be taken off the table. At some time, all this makes sense, but yet knowing full well that I still wanted to retain a uh, core position in those Northern Dynasty uh, B warrants is the ones that I, I was playing. But no, normally I don't go into a position uh, looking at it with a trader hat on and thinking it's going to double next week or triple next week. And I don't know anybody that's really that good at that game. That's 
just is not what I want to personally be doing. Establish some nice long-term positions and ride this wave up over the next couple of years. We take some money off the table if it's given to us. Otherwise, we'll bank those gains closer to the end. Well, Dudley, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for the update. There's a lot of exciting news coming out. I'm sure during the next few weeks and months, it'll be great to catch up with you again soon. Thanks for joining me. Okay, thanks, Ella. I've been speaking with Dudley Baker. The website is commonstockwarrants.com. That's commonstockwarrants.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Gold Cliff is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow by applying the phased production business model to precious metals assets. The company is currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove, Nevada Gold Project through a 40% joint venture interest. Mr. Sanders was part of the team that successfully brought the Silvercrest Mine Santa Elena project to fruition as a mine, selling it off to First Majestic Silver. George, welcome back to the program. Ellis, thank you. Pleasure to be here again. If you wouldn't mind, give our listeners an overview of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation. Sure. Gold Cliff Resource Corporation was a uh, long-established exploration company. This spring, we decided to transition from exploration into mine development. We're following the phased production business model, which is a model that I've enjoyed a little success with in another company. Your listeners may be familiar with the Silvercrest Mines, now Silvercrest Metals story. I was part of that team, and we were able to utilize that business model and make a lot of money for our shareholders. So in May of this year, we decided in Gold Cliff that we would also focus on that business model and transition away from more traditional pure exploration. And by the midsummer, we had acquired an interest in an advanced stage small gold deposit in Nevada called Pine Grove. We're earning a joint venture interest in that project by spending $1.4 million over over three years. That project has had significant development to the point where there has been a resource, most of which is in the measured category, produced. We believe it's capable of supporting a modest open pit heap leach mine, and our activity right now is focused on advancing towards the permitting and project finance type documentation required to build that mine. As part of that work, you always want to see if there's going to be some extra gold beyond your resource. That's the reason that we undertook a small drill program from the middle of October to the middle of December. And yesterday we were pleased to announce some very favorable and encouraging results from that program. Well, let's talk about those results. I understand you've identified intercepts of up to half an ounce of gold per ton. Well, absolutely. The Pine Grove District is known as a historical high-grade producer. And when I say historical, I'm talking circa 1880s to 1900. There was quarter million ounces taken out of the district, best as, as everybody can determine, at an average grade in excess of an ounce. Bona fide, strong, high-grade former production. While that's not our primary target, we're looking at an open pit heap leach here and more conventional bulk tonnage grades. The past drilling and sampling has indicated that there still are high grades to be found at Pine Grove. And in fact, in this recent drilling, WL 
114 drill hole had a, a nice zone in it that included a five foot interval of just over half an ounce and a separate five foot interval of 0.6 ounces gold per ton. So better than half ounce in that hole. And those kinds of results, while they're not the target of our drilling, are not surprising because that's the nature of the mineralization in the Pine Grove District. For those that have invested in your company during the last year, I believe lately they may be pleased in addition to new potential investors in these results. And I think we've seen a bit of a reflection of that in the market. The key for any public development company is you always hope that the share price will give your finance investors a little bit of a lift. That has certainly occurred. We hope we can establish a really solid track record whereby any equity financing in the future is always done at a price that's a little bit of a premium to the past equity financings. That's a good way to attract serial investors. That's our goal though there. Although I have to say about the market, Ellis, we're much more focused day to day on project development and advancing the asset. And it's our belief that if we do that successfully and meet those milestones, the market, as long as we're communicating regularly, will kind of take care of itself. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's always doing the work in the ground and hopefully the market will perform accordingly. Yeah, our focus is not day to day on the promoting of the stock. Obviously, we try to communicate regularly, but really our focus is advancing the asset. And we'd like to be able, every time we raise money, to go back to those investors a couple months later, six months later, a year later, and say to them, you gave us this money, you trusted us, and here's what we've done with it, and here's the value that we've delivered. So on this last financing that we did at 19 cents and raised a million and a quarter gross Canadian, a chunk of that money went into this drill program, and the significance of this drill program, or the results beyond the couple of high-grade hits, is that we've extended mineralization beyond the existing resource. So anybody that looks at Pine Grove or has followed us for a little while knows that the resource is a little bit modest and that's fine. We made money on a similar size resource in my uh, Silvercrest experience. However, Silvercrest was successful because they were able to expand and we believe that Pine Grove will be a success because it will be able to expand. But before you can tell people that in a believable manner, you have to demonstrate it. And that's what we've done. We've shown that the mineralization occurs outside of the existing resource calculation. And in fact, Ellis, it's wide open in that area. The second and equally important thing about that is it occurs in an area where given the previous resource calculation, this new zone occurs in an area that was designated for pre-stripping. In other words, it was designated as waste. So the fact that out there a couple hundred feet to the north, we've hit this new zone, the new zone remains open, all of a sudden that material is material that would be delivered to the crusher and not to the waste ore pile. And that's going to, we think, if we can extend it with further drilling, that is going to result in a reconfiguration of the pit. It's going to result in the reduction of upfront capital for stripping. 
So the capital cost estimate on this thing initially a couple years ago was between 25 and 27 million. We think we can do it for about 22 million, but of that 25 to 7 estimate, 2 million included pre-stripping on the Wilson deposit. And clearly we can see just with this program that we won't have to spend that much money pre-stripping it because this new stuff occurs within the top 100 feet and up to 55 feet from surface. So that's a really, really exciting result. And we look forward later on in the spring, summer to uh, further drilling this new zone. Well, George, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Always a pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. I've been speaking with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, and go to goldcliff.com for more information on the company. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange's SIL.B. Silvercrest Metals is a Vancouver-based precious metals exploration company that is focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals districts. Their Las Chispas mine in Sonora State, Mexico, promises to be a potentially highly prolific play. Eric, welcome back to the program. Ellis, thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure. Late in 2016, you announced you were beginning the Phase 2 drill surface and underground drill program. What's the current status of that? We actually started it in December. We did do some work over the holidays. While everybody else was resting, we were working at Los Chispas. The uh, Phase 2 program is in two parts. Part one is the drill program, which is about between six to 10,000 meters, depending on success this year. And that's both surface and underground drilling. We, so far to date, have completed about 2,000 meters of that. Most of that's the surface. Of that 2,000, there's a couple hundred meters of underground drilling at Bobby Canora currently. Looking for our first result for phase two drilling to come out sometime in February. I don't like to put one or two holes out. We're going to put these things out in five to ten hole kind of batches as they come through the assays. A drilling is focusing on establishing our maiden resource later this year. Also drill testing the Bali Kenora target, which historically was the largest producer in the district. This district has laid dormant for the last 75 years and has never been drilled as far as we can tell. So we're the first to drill in this district. How do we have these historic targets that no one is touched and you're about to find out what's in the ground there well it's uh, been the historic industry standard that you drive on grade and you drill for structure that's what they did historically the discovery at los chispas was made in 1640 by a spanish general a lot of unrest with apaches up until the late 1800s there was some mining that was done in the district before the late 1800s and it was driven on grade nothing else we found no evidence of any drill callers on surface or underground. Usually you go into these districts and there's a pile of core sitting somewhere. There's no evidence of any of that. So again, drive on grade and drill on structure. They weren't too concerned with structure. 
What is the second part of that phase two program? The second part of the phase two program, the critical part, is the ongoing underground rehabilitation of approximately 11.5 kilometers of old workings. So we're reestablishing these workings and we're getting critical data geologically and from a potential mineability of high-grade underground. The mineralization, as far as we know, and from a mineability standpoint, had a historic cutoff grade of somewhere between 500 to 1 kilo of silver. There's quite a bit of material that still remains intact underground in the 300 to 500 grams per ton silver plus gold. We're excited about seeing the results from that from underground and we'll continue probably on a monthly basis to refresh our rehabilitation with new access and some more results as they come out. Not only do we have the underground results coming out, but you'll see just more of this underground rehabilitation. This rehabilitation, just to remind the general public, is exploration rehabilitation. From a mining standpoint, there would need to be more development. You could actually use a lot of the underground workings right now for that development, if you wished. Just keep that in mind. We've considered that there's also quite a bit of lower-grade material associated with the underground workings and some wider zones. There may be potential for some bulk lower grade in the future. We'll see how that works out in our design. The lower grades can still be substantial, right? And uniquely, too, most of these districts I've been to around in Mexico in my career, and the dumps and the tailings have usually been scavenged and taken to smelters in the past, and Los Chispas, most of that stuff still remains. So there's quite a bit of high-grade material that's actually just sitting on the surface right now that could be potentially reprocessed in the future. I've been speaking with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVCMF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as SIL.B. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.B. And in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Let's recap some of the successes for Pure Energy over the last year and look ahead to what we think 2017 is going to look like. You know, it's a great time to recap a year. We've just had a big year at Pure Energy Minerals. We got a lot done. We drilled six holes on our Clayton Valley South project. We conducted pumping tests. We even completed a mini pilot plant where we actually had a proof of concept of this new technology that we hope will allow us to extract lithium without those huge unsightly evaporators 
operation ponds often associated with these operations. Patrick, even though we've been covering the lithium space for quite some time now, the general public is not fully up to speed yet as far as the relevance of the mineral beyond perhaps electric or hybrid cars, lithium-ion batteries, and things of that nature. That certainly is beginning to change, of course, but really energy storage and energy delivery as a whole is certainly the evolving story moving forward, in my opinion. As I look around my studio here, I see nothing but wires connecting one device to another and a flurry of electrical plug-ins on two massive power strips. We live in a society now that wants to be wireless. You know, the lithium story came on the scene for resource investors probably in about 2009, Ellis. As you and I have discussed, I was one of the founders of Lithium One back then. It was palpable that things were going to change, and we think we made some good moves back then to go make some big lithium discoveries and alert the market to it, and we certainly got some traction and and had a good story there for our investors in Lithium One. However, we were early. Frankly, the lithium battery industry was still small. The real applications of what this high-powered metal could do were still relatively few and limited in scope. Whereas today, as investors are becoming more aware and hearing the word lithium on an almost daily basis, electric vehicles rolling out, growing at 60% year over year, I think you're right. I think lithium's role in the new economy, but also in the new grid, the new way we manage our energy, is just really coming into people's visibility, and and there's still a lot to learn about it, for sure. Do you believe that this energy grid, one that's actually over 100 years old, if the system were to crash today and some sort of major blackout were to take hold, there's no energy storage system in place or any real measure of self-sufficiency to power America for any period of time, really. How important is energy storage via lithium, and how important will it be in the future? You know, it is hard to believe how dependent we are locked in position, really, in stationary position with our grid. And, you know, you and I have already used the words, the grid, several times in this short interview, and we might as well plug a book that we've been discussing, The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future by Dr. Gretchen Bakke. And I'll probably reference a few facts in Dr. Bakke's book, but the topic she writes about there is exactly that. We have this grid, the utilities that we pay for the delivery of our power. The whole structure is based on a hundred-year-old approach to things, and yet it's clear as you point out, that Americans are rejecting wires in in almost every way we can, and we like to take our power with us, and now we're doing it in electric vehicles. And these things are very well facilitated by lithium, this lightest of all metals, highest energy density of all metals, and the batteries are just keep getting better and better. And as of this moment, I think you're right, Ellis. If the grid goes down, we suffer immediately and profoundly for the duration of the blackout. We're lighting candles and what have you. But energy storage is on its way. And right now, as Dr. Bakke says in her book, 95% of so-called grid storage is pumped hydro, i.e. we, we pump water up into a lake in the mountains, which we can then use its potential energy to run turbines and store power that way. But really, there are no large-scale grid storage batteries just yet. There's a big one outside of Fairbanks that Dr. Bakke writes about and others in development. But what's exciting is lithium being so lightweight, having such energy density, can not only help us store energy, as they do with the Tesla Powerwall, which is now being sold, of course, but we can take it with us, and that's where it's so important. And I think that electric vehicles are going to integrate more into our future super grids and smart grids 
it's than even we realize right now. Will the Tesla power walls or inbuilt structures of that nature potentially remove us from the grid? You know, I think consumers, and especially those who are, who are big on technology, they don't want to be locked in place by access to power. And we've already hinted at that subject. We want to be mobile. We want to be wireless. And something like the power wall, as I understand it, really doesn't give you the ability to go off grid. But what it does is it gives you a few minutes up to a few hours to redistribute when you make power, when you store it, and when you use it. So for instance, you can make power on your roof with solar cells, store that for off-peak use, for instance, and those sorts of things. And in fact, what we learn when we really study the grid is there's more to it than that. There's huge problems with surges of power when we don't need it. For instance, in the middle of the day when solar is running at full speed, of course, that creates a whole lot of energy and that, in effect, becomes surplus. So what we really need is a more creative way to look at the grid, the business of managing our grid, and really that allows entrepreneurship and creativity to kick in. And perhaps the most interesting thing we see going on are not only the uses of things like Tesla's Powerwall, but experimentations with microgrids and so-called nanogrids, where we see communities, universities, research centers integrating all possible and varied ways of making and storing power, cogeneration anytime there's some heat in a process we can capture that and use some of that to generate some power. We can use solar and wind. And of course, we can interact with the grid as well. But that makes this miniature grid, this nano grid, that much more redundant. And of course, it can begat savings for the users of these nano grids as well. And that's some of the neatest things that are going on right now that we can read about in Dr. Bakke's book. We see the experiments going on by the Department of Defense, various universities that can not only be self-sufficient for significant periods of time, but they can conserve energy and, in fact, of course, can sell energy back to the grid. But I think the big question is, can the grid in the United States modernize? Can the business of managing that grid modernize enough to really maximize these things so that that super future that we are all hoping for can really come to pass? Then doesn't this archaic grid eventually become obsolete as some of these micro, mini, or community grids are set up around the country? Will we see a wireless electric world where you're passing through an area perhaps by motor vehicle or otherwise and all of your devices are powered up much like cell phone services connected as you travel through the air? I think you're right, Ellis. I think that the concepts of the business of utilities and how they price power and how they maintain the infrastructure have to be rethought. And what you're touching on are some of the concepts like wireless power transmission and electric vehicles basically being batteries on wheels. And of course, very smart computers, as we know, if you take a look at the new Tesla Model S or Model X today, the onboard computer power is spectacular. And here you have this battery on wheels passing through, obviously, fields of energy. And if power transmission is wireless or going in that direction. It certainly changes things, and we know the business has to change. But let's not forget, a man named Nikola Tesla actually demonstrated the potential of transmitting power without wires over 120 years ago in 1893 by lighting three light bulbs from more than 100 feet away. And that's pretty impressive stuff that uh, 120 years ago, we demonstrated the theory behind something could be done. And now we're seeing the entrepreneurs the Silicon Valley billionaires and others thinking of ways to accomplish things that allow us to take our power with us. And I think electric vehicles with their lithium batteries on board are going to be a big part of that. And Dr. Bakke writes about that. Virtually every concept for a future grid that facilitates renewable sources of energy with variable rates of generation, all of those 
really rely on some level on electric vehicles. That is, these batteries on wheels being plugged in and then being transported from point A to point B. A person goes home from work, they take their power with them when they drive their electric vehicle home, plug it in at a different point, and then, of course, it can be used by these smart grids to uh, regulate power flow. Of course, we're going to need companies to provide lithium. The resource industry has always got exciting new stories, a a big new gold discovery, a a big new lithium discovery, and, and I believe that that sort of excitement can drive entrepreneurialism and experimentation and R&D. In the case of lithium, you know, there was just a Washington Post article that called it white gold. Certainly, there's this excitement and sort of hype sometimes around this commodity. But I can tell you this, having spoken with other executives in the lithium industry, not many of us really believe that this grid storage concept or even the full potential of electric vehicles has been factored into our models of supply and demand. But I can tell you this, while that's exciting for price, maybe in the near to medium term, in other words, a a strong demand and maybe not quite enough supply to get there just yet, certainly driving prices higher, and we see that today. However, over the long term, geologically, we know there's lots of lithium out there. We have to find new and better ways to extract it. We need to do so at a lower cost, so a new operation built today can withstand the price cycles that are inevitable. But we also need to do it in a sustainable way so that we're extracting lithium with a minimal impact on our water resources, working closely with the communities in which we operate, and of course, mitigating uh, air quality and other environmental issues that can happen around these large mining operations, whether they be brine or hard rock. So I think geologically, there's plenty of lithium, Ellis. I really believe that. However, it's certainly true that the incumbent producers have not been very good at bringing new production online. And I think the evidence for that is the rising prices. But of course, the good news there is that many of us are rushing out to make new discoveries and to demonstrate their potential economics and, in fact, to get new projects built. And we have seen a couple of juniors come online with new lithium production over the last few years, and I think that's a good sign. And I think there's more of that to come, and I think from Dr. Bakke's book and other sort of timely media stuff out there right now. There are exciting times ahead for lithium's role in our grid and certainly in energy storage and most definitely in electric vehicles. Let's talk about energy and lithium competing in a space that is very broad. In this case, in the United States, we have a robust, healthy mining industry in, in some sectors. However, we have been burdened with regulations. Many would say that the sheer quantity and detail in the regulations has imposed a burden and has at least slowed things down. And that's certainly evidenced in how long it takes to get things permitted. So I think if we look at the last few years, we do see a higher degree of regulations, some of which may have been needed, many of which probably were overkill or perhaps redundant. And so that's one element. The other, however, with something like lithium, is we have a potential green energy-related commodity here that there's only one producer in all of North America. That's our neighbor, of course, in Clayton Valley, Albemarle Corporation. And yet we have a lot of resources of lithium in this country and in Canada, and yet those haven't been brought online or have been uh, slow to come online or slow to be developed. We don't think the lithium industry per se needs a whole lot of subsidies from the government, but what we do need is a facilitative government, a facilitative permitting environment that allows us to get after these deposits, make these discoveries, and advance them through the various milestones towards production. And we believe that's important. And we believe a streamlining of regulations, as proposed by the Trump administration, sounds attractive. And at the same time, it's clear that there's a momentum perhaps against a lot of government subsidies and things like that. But I think we in the mining industry have already learned our lessons in that regard. If you can't build a project that's economic through the price cycle, then you're likely to destroy value for your investors. And so at Pure Energy, our focus has been on cost-effective lithium production, the ability to get an operation into production that can weather 
the price cycles, and I think that's key for any future mining developments, whether they be large companies or small companies, paying attention to the bottom line. Now, it's certainly true that an administration in favor of green energy can make things move a little faster in some areas and can streamline regulations, but by and large, look at the value brought to investors, the jobs created, the expansion of the tax base when a new operation goes into production, and that sort of thing. And I think for the most part, the lithium industry is modern. We can adapt to the changing administrations in Washington or whichever national capital. And of course, the uh, funds to do exploration and development do move around the world. That pendulum swings based on the administration in place. And it just so happens that one of the uh, exciting elements of lithium is its topical nature as it relates to environmentally sustainable energy sources. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.